This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Disney has received approval from the Department of Justice to go ahead with a plan to buy certain assets of 21st Century Fox for $71.3 billion. The proposal will go to shareholders on July 27th. In the decision, the DOJ asked Disney to divest itself from 22 regional sports networks that Fox owned. In addition, Disney has said they would divest up to another $1 billion in Fox assets. So is this a done deal, or could Comcast still be be a player in this somehow. Herbert Hovenkamp is a professor with a joint appointment at the University of Pennsylvania Law School as well as the Wharton School. He joins me in studio and joining us on the phone, Hamant Bargava, who is chair in technology management at the University of California at Davis. Herb, great seeing you again. Good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Hamant, great to have you back with us as well. Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you. It, did this, it, it felt like, and in some of the reporting, Herb, it seems like this was a fairly quick decision by the DOJ to go ahead and say to Disney, yes, go ahead with this deal. Was it in your mind? It was an extremely quick decision, particularly when you look at the market share numbers of these firms, at least in some markets, which puts them pretty close to the line. It would be the kind of merger that you would think the government would actually take its time evaluating. Her, uh, hey, Mont, your thoughts? Uh, yes, Dan, this was extremely quick, and what uh, this illustrates is that perhaps the decision-making on mergers is beginning to shift a little bit and recognize that these markets uh, have to be valued differently when the market boundaries themselves are changing. And so even though they may both have 27% uh, of the market collectively, perhaps the DOJ recognizes that, that there are new players who are beginning to become more powerful. Well, and Herb, we were talking about this before we went on the air, is that we've seen a good amount of M&A activity recently anyway. And how is that playing off of what Hamon said? How could this be changing the standards for merger activity? Well, it's very hard to say right now. It could go in either direction. On the one side, there are those who think that as a result of technology changes, particularly the extent to which uh, these companies compete with, uh, you know, the cell phone, the traditional cell phone companies that are moving big time into media, uh, are in fact the boundaries changing or are market definitions becoming less predictive? On the other side is a pretty growing feeling on the uh, part of many merger scholars uh, that the guidelines have become a little bit too lenient. Uh, and that's based on some retrospective studies that have looked at uh, marginal mergers that were approved in the past. So I mean mergers that were very close to the line, as this one is, based on the existing market share data. And uh, those studies have determined that a fairly high percentage of those mergers have resulted in higher prices. Now, there right. may be changes in quality or something that explains that, but uh, there's, a, there's at least some consensus out there that uh, our merger standards have become a little bit too lenient. Hamad, is that a worry of yours as well? Well, it's not so much a worry as it would be really hard to establish that in this uh, field because prices will it will be really difficult to link prices to products. Uh, firms will combine products into different types of bundles than they had before. And so you really will not be able to isolate the prices of a particular group of things and say that they go up or down. So it'll be very hard to do this kind of predictive analysis, you know, five or ten years from now. Is there 
it, I mean, obviously it feels like that, that Fox and Disney have this done, but what element could Comcast potentially play, if any at all, at this point, Hamont? Well, that's difficult to uh, discuss, uh, say anything now, because they've already tried to play a role in these last several months, and they have been rebuffed, and they were rebuffed earlier. So uh, the price of this merger has gone up substantially, and so the cost to Comcast of trying to up and get ahead of Disney will be very, very high. And it it will be hard for them to justify that they could actually make money out of, let's say, an $80 billion price tag. And at the same time, I think what Comcast is worrying is that compared with AT&T, which is a competitor on the pipeline industry, but has gotten much ahead of Comcast in terms of content ownership, that they will be um, a little bit under against AT&T in terms of getting subscribers. And so I think they will try to fight hard, but I think they've really hit a boundary of how much they could offer. The smarter thing would be to try to go and collect high-quality content elsewhere from other other companies. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. This merger price has been bid up, I think, roughly 35% over the last couple or three months, thanks to Comcast's intervention. There's already some debate about whether uh, the current price is too high. Uh, the only way Comcast can realistically upend this transaction is by coming in with a yet higher price. The Murdoch family is the largest shareholder. They have 17%, and they're firmly behind the Fox-Disney deal, not behind Comcast. Largest shareholder in Disney, correct? That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, in Disney. So uh, they, uh, you know, I think all of the dominoes are stacking up in favor of the currently approved deal. Uh, To say nothing of the fact that Comcast would still have to get DOJ approval, which uh, and remember, Comcast already owns NBC, which is a horizontal competitor for many of these uh, for many of these programs. So there's a whole lot of hurdles in front of Comcast right now. Hema, you've talked a lot when we've discussed this in the past about the the vertical integration in doing a, a deal like this. Uh, when you look at these two companies for the, for the average consumer, where are the synergies moving forward of these two companies that have basically, you know, may, maybe don't have a whole lot of, of crossover, uh, but they obviously can draw benefits off of each other? Uh, do you mean Disney and Fox? Yes, correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. So I think one of the big, big advantages of this merger will be when Disney finally launches a streaming service. And, um, you know, one of the questions I have is whether that streaming service would be um, in addition and complementary to everything else a customer can get, meaning there could be a Disney, Disney, Disney Fox streaming service, which is offered independently, and still Disney continues to offer its content to AT&T and Comcast and other players who also provide their own bundles, right? Or whether Disney Fox would go out on their own and be like Netflix, where really you can only get that content as part of their own bundle and not offer it through the other uh, players. And the third possibility is whether Disney Fox tries to become a bigger player in this industry where they offer their own content as well as a lot of other things that they can sign licensing deals over. So I think if this merger is putting them in the place of being able to become their own bundling player, 
but it probably won't happen right away. I think what they would do right away is to offer their own streaming service and then still be available elsewhere. Um, the second area where there might be synergies is in, in um, I think, um, in the sports area and whether as part of streaming service they're able to capture new customers because they can offer some monopolistic programming that is not available elsewhere. So I, th I think really it's the primary synergy is going to be that they become a bigger content player in this industry and they can sign up subscribers and get this recurring revenue, which even if it's $15 a month, it's uh, it's guaranteed predictable revenue for for many, many months because people don't cut their subscriptions that quickly. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the fact that Disney is going to get that streaming service up and running, but uh, the, the Disney Corporation uh, already has ESPN, which just started a streaming service, what, about a month or so ago, and they are have already have that up and running. So there's kind of the unique twist with the, with the, uh, the regional sports networks, correct? That's right, but you know, I, I think the ESPN case is going to be different. It's different than what Disney, Fox, this new content company could offer because that's highly specialized, very skinny content, and you go after niche uh, customers who really care about that. Um, right. But the Disney Fox bundle could actually serve the content consumption needs of a lo lot of consumers and serve maybe the primary need for many others, and then they could go out and get other specialized things when they need it. So I think what Disney would be looking forward to is that they become the primary content place or the supplier for, you know, let's say 15 to 20 million customers over the next several years. Herbert? Yeah, I think, I think the one thing that media merger horizontal and vertical media mergers have in common is that both are properly concerned with excessive siloing in this market. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about that once in, in the past, but but program licenses are, are inexhaustible. A program can be licensed an infinite number of times once a program is created and Customers today, consumers today are more or less educated to thinking they can get a lot of programming, perhaps not absolutely all of it, but a lot of it in from one service. Uh, and I think one of the things a lot of people fear about excessive concentration in this market is that too many of these companies are going to try to bottle up their own content, either through traditional cable offerings or through skinny bundles or whatever mechanism or, you know, other types of streaming. And uh, they're going to be reluctant to share that content with others. And what that means for consumers is that if you want a, a big range of content, you may have to subscribe to more than one uh, more than one service. And we have not at this point seen exactly how that's going to play out. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about. Well, we've talked we've talked in the past about what these types of deals and what this type of industry is going to do to the traditional players for long. One being Comcast, right? Comcast is starting to dip their toe in the water uh, of this idea as well. Even all the while, they're trying to keep their core business, which they've had for you know thirty years or so, keep that as a very uh, viable option. Yeah, Comcast's problem is structural, which is that it is. A cable company. Yeah. Most of its assets are in cable. 
cable is frankly a dying technology. Uh, it's cumbersome. It's expensive. Uh, it's got some advantages uh, in terms of bandwidth and so, but those van- those advantages are rapidly disappearing. And when 5G becomes widely available, they will probably be gone. And Comcast, I think, realizes that it's got to move into streaming and other Internet-based programming services if it wants to remain viable in a in an industry that's moving away from traditional cable. Hey, Matt? Yeah, I think uh, Herb is totally correct. And, uh, you know, this is the problem, that if you're an established player with a dying product category, you are on the one hand trying to enter the new industry, but you're you're too shackled by your interest in the older industry. And so you often do not make the right moves at the right time. And I think the same dance played out in uh, in retail and electronic commerce where the, you know, brick-and-mortar companies like Kmart and all were just unable to respond to the new online e-commerce approach. And, the you know, Comcast, they, they have majority of their current revenue coming in from cable. And so they really do not want to take actions that hurt that revenue, whereas if you look 10 years ahead, it may indeed be smart to move early, give up this business that's driving your current revenue, even help to kill it faster than what it might otherwise happen, as Herb said, and then be better positioned to be in this new world of, of how, and I think Herb is totally correct that 5G will be another uh, shift in in people's um, uh, approach towards cable and, and consumers will more consumers will be able to drop cable because they, they have the 5G alternative to pull their content. The classic story of this, textbook story of this is Kodak in a different sure. company. Yeah. Kodak was a 90 plus percent monopolist in the market for both uh, amateur still cameras and uh, film and photo processing. And then when digital uh, Technology, totally different technology came on the scene. They simply were not nimble enough to pull away from it. They tried everything. They tried making little printers so people could print up their own photos and everything else. They played a losing game, and by the time they finally shifted over to digital technology, it was too little too late, and, of course, they eventually went bankrupt. And, you know, I mean, NBC... Comcast is certainly aware of these problems, that if if the cable industry dies, they don't want to be stuck with such a significant commitment in this old technology. Well, the other part to it, Hamont, which is interesting about this deal, is obviously the movie side of it as well, uh, because uh, according to a couple of estimates, Disney and Fox would have about 40% of the, of the movie receipts. Uh, with the two entities that they already have. So they're also driving a monopoly in the movie industry as well. Yes, that's a, that's an excellent point, Dan, and we don't talk enough about that because we focus on uh, content coming into people's homes. But uh, there is another similar you know, vertical competition that happens in, in movie consumption that the firms that own the content have then to strike deals with the exhibition venue, Cinema House, and Disney and Fox will have a hugely bigger uh, stick with which to play that fight. Um, I think Disney already extracts higher percentage fees uh, when a movie is seen inside a cinema hall than some of the other uh, studios. 
and together they will be even more powerful. And uh, I think Herb may have a better idea on this, but you know, eventually you might think, why shouldn't Disney Fox run their own movie, uh, Cinema House? And I think there are currently regulations against doing that, but that would be another area to watch, and that would be parallel to this idea of Disney Fox coming in with their own streaming service and going direct to the consumer, right? So this, this sort of vertical integration in content consumption at the home, and the question is whether they become, um, you know, gradually more powerful and moving towards vertical integration in movie content consumption and cinema house. Well, and Herb, that's been a concern for a few years now, is what is going to be the future of the traditional movie theater? That industry has been kind of started to be on the edge. And seemingly, a lot of these companies with all of the content and the access, you know, obviously easier via the smartphone, tablet, whatever it might be. It's, it's an industry that, that really has a lot of questions at. Theaters are facing more headwinds than practically any tech market today. I mean, it's not only that. You know, Television screens have gotten much bigger and much yeah. cheaper. Streaming services have gotten much higher quality. So we have, you know, 4HD and so on. When 5G hits the market, wireless streaming is going to be comparable practically to theater quality. And uh, the economies of running a theater are just uh, uh, facing a, a very, very uh, significant uphill struggle against all of that. I am not optimistic about the traditional mainstream uh, movie market in theaters. I mean, we'll always have independent films and small theaters and so on. But I think the mainstream market is ready for a calamitous reorganization. Is it the same, Haymont, then, with, with Netflix and, and with Amazon as, as they are obviously producing more content? And, and then what impact does, does this have on Hulu since Disney was a major uh, asset holder in that entity as well? Boy, all very, very fascinating and hard to tell where this is going. So certainly Netflix will have a bigger competitor in Disney Fox. Uh, you know, but I think this is an opportunity for somewhat out-of-the-box thinking. So imagine if Disney and theaters could somehow strike deals where if you're a Disney subscriber at home, and let's say, you know, if you were just doing, Disney were to do a streaming service, they might charge, let's say, 10 to $15 per month per subscriber. But what if they could strike deals with theaters where they could charge consumers $25 a month and offer them two movies at the theater? Right. Yeah. So these right now, the problem is these content consumption occurs in several different places. And there hasn't been a way for the content supplier to coordinate pricing and consumption across these markets. Right. So if you're consuming at the home, that content came in through our, you know, bundles that were offered by AT&T, Comcast and may now be offered direct by consumer. If you're watching at the uh, theater, it's coming in through that separately, and there's no way to coordinate that. And so there's there's really interesting possibilities to think of new products uh, through, through these price bundling. The second is, you know, also to look at other areas of content consumption where Disney could become, uh, could increase their power and ability to fight against Netflix and other firms. So, you know, we talk about movies, TV shows, but gaming is a huge area of content consumption. Yeah. Yep. And Disney could uh, strike deals there, and that would be another possibility for Comcast, actually, that if they want to compete against AT&T with more content, that instead of going after, um, you know, just movie, TV shows, passive consumption, go after things that involve 
interactive gaming or other areas where, where people's eyeballs are shifting towards. Um, so it's really hard to tell where this will go. I think a lot will depend on how much these industries are able to think innovatively. They have been very, um, you know, conservatively run for many years, very often family-owned, uh, like in the Fox case. Um, but I think if they can combine tomorrow's consumption against, uh, you know, yesterday's delivery technologies, there might be some very different things that might occur than we could predict today. But does the, does the technology that we have at our hands right now, Herb, does it almost just kind of lay it out there right for these companies like Disney and Fox? I mean, obviously they need to think creatively, but they obviously have a great tool to be able to use to be able to open up all these doors. They have the tool to open it up, but don't forget they also have the tool to constrict. Okay. And we have to see right. which one of those scenarios plays out. I mean, yeah, sure, Disney may enter streaming service. What if someday it decides that it's going to make Disney movies, this huge portfolio of very, very popular movies available only on the Disney streaming service, yeah. thus ruling out Netflix and Amazon and uh, the other independent streaming services? If that plays out, then customers are going to have to are going to be put in a position where they're going to have to subscribe to multiple services in order to get all of the movies they want. Uh, and then I think you're going to see some pushback from consumer interests uh, who are, you know, we, we usually think of antitrust as a consumer welfare principle. We look at the interests of consumers uh, first, and that interest is not merely in low prices. It's also in quality and variety. And yep. uh, they've come to expect a big variety. And that's when, if you get to that point, that's when you start to get the reaction from Washington and Capitol Hill. And then we start to see them coming in and looking at as whether or not these are actual good entities or if they're impinging on the ability of the consumer to, to get the content that they want. Yeah. And at that point, we're in the position where we have to unwind the clock, which is always more costly, cumbersome and raises more legal issues than preventing it in the first place. And that's the bridge we may have to cross in the future. Hey, Matt? Yeah, well, I would offer a slightly different uh, view on this. Uh, one, that I think it is more likely to occur than not, uh, because, you know, imagine there's Netflix streaming and Disney streaming, and they both offer each other's content and a lot of other content. That becomes a highly commoditized area of competition. That will drive lower prices. I definitely agree. But that would also cause these firms to look for ways to differentiate, and that is done by holding some of their content exclusively Absolutely. on their side. So I think it's likely to occur because the alternative is really bad for them. The second thing is in terms of the reaction of consumers, this has already been occurring now for, you know, clearly for five years and almost ten, yeah. that a lot of consumers have to get Netflix, they get Amazon Prime, and, and you know, Amazon has a lot of exclusives on their end. Uh, they still subscribe to their cable bundle because there is a lot of content that's not available on Netflix. And then occasionally they may still have to subscribe to uh, these special events like uh, World Cup soccer uh, or, uh, you know, the Olympics when they come about, which are uh, mono monopoly rights and often not available on uh, unless you're getting these full bundles. So we've, we're used, and then people get Hulu and they get YouTube Live. So a lot of consumers now are already paying four, five, six uh, player places a month. And that reaction has not really occurred. Uh, and instead, we might see the development of tools that can 
make it easier for consumers to subscribe for multiple uh, content providers. We may also see um, tools that will make it easy for them to turn these subscriptions on and off because you know, in, in subscription-based industries, one of the uh, you know, well-known things is that consumers subscribe and they have something they need for a few months, and then they stop consuming and they still you know, let their credit card yeah. be charged, yeah. $10 a month. And so if they could figure out ways to turn these uh, subscriptions on and off, that would, again, make it better for consumers. Um, so it, the, my point is that this sort of thing that needs a reaction has actually happened for many years. Which is, which is why, playing off of something you, you both said before, which is why when we really get to the 5G circle, then it becomes even more important to get this right because the focus for some people will be on the Internet side of it and being able to provide that access to all of those different services, Amon. That's right. And, you know, it's really hard to think of one more merger now, but, you know, we just saw the Sprint T-Mobile merger. We talked about it. It's not clear where that's going. It really just, you know, imagine if a Netflix bought Sprint or T-Mobile and started offering 5G streaming. And yeah. then over time even started offering content from other players, uh, not not something like Disney, but, you know, a variety of other um, suppliers and becomes the primary content provider rather than a secondary one for many people as of now. Great having you both with us. Thank you, uh, Herbert. Great seeing you again, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Mike, great having you on the phone with us. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Herbert Hovenkamp from here at the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I'm at Bargava from the University of California at Davis. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.